White Hot Magazine, one of the world's leading platforms for contemporary art. Greetings, art world. Hi. Hi there, Sharon Anderson. Good afternoon. How goes it in your world of art and hijinks? Uh, it's it's busy. I don't really get a lot of time to sit and reflect on how it's going, but I think it's been going pretty well. Yeah. One thing I want to say, though, is that I know you love rock and roll, and I have to ask you immediately, have you heard the new Beatles track now and then? Yeah, I have heard it. Um, I like it. I, I know that when I do have time to go and look at things online, I know that it's a big controversy for some reason with people, and which I think is kind of silly. Uh, I, I think it's a nice, beautiful, melodic song, and it's kind of like, you know, when the anthology came out in the 90s, there were all those demos that were new to the anthology, the new demos that they did. So I think it was an outgrowth of all those sessions. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's really nice to have a new Beatles single. What what could be wrong with that? And a new Rolling Stones album, like at the same time. That is what's fascinating, that in 2023, we have a new Beatles song and a new Rolling Stones album. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, we got to leave it to people that are older to, to rock us out, I guess. I don't know. But can you imagine being a young performer, having to compete after all these years still with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones? Yeah, I don't know if it's really so much competition. Everything is so saturated. There's so much more media that I think, you know, there's probably a lot of really great artists out there that, if I could just have time to dig around a little bit more, I would know more about. There's a lot of younger groups that are doing great things, but I, I don't know if competition is the right word anymore, but I get what you're saying. To be on the same uh, wavelength at the same time, you know, I'm releasing my album and so, so are the Beatles and the Stones, but so am I. So that, that's got to be a weird feeling for everybody. In essence, it's a matter of honoring as well, not competing so much, but having to realize that these are musicians who inspired us all our lives. And now we get to bow to them a bit more after all these yes. years. I want to say, though, you recently won a Halloween contest where you came dressed up as David Bowie's Aladdin Sane. And I'm curious to know whether taking on the role or the personas of other artists inspires your creativity well i i would say yes it's just fun to dress up and do something really crazy i think it gives everybody else a little bit of room and space to be maybe a little more crazy than they would have been because i'm not as crazy as sharon is right now but you know what i'm saying it's it's fun to um uh it was just really fun painting that aladdin saying lightning bolt on my face and putting the costume on and going to work and going to a party and you know, some people know who, who it is and some people don't. And then you listen to people argue. Well, don't you know that that's David Bowie? Well, no, I don't. And you just sit back and listen to this great conversation about music just by how I look, you know. Yeah, part of it also is kind of like what Stephen Nakmanovic talked about in his book, Free Play, Improvisation in Life and Art. The idea of playing, the idea of improvising kind of 
inspires the creative process, does it not? Oh yeah, yeah. It 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 all plays into it. I'm always listening to music, especially when I work. I think a lot about where we are with um, recording history, passing on what we know to the next generation. We just got to be talking about the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Artists and art, artists and critic Robert Store recently was talking about the great artist Stephen Antonakis. And he said there was a time when you could sit with an Antonakis and have a conversation. He doesn't think that happens as much anymore. But at the same time, I saw a video of Thurston Moore performing with a young musician. Do you think technology allows us that level of interconnectivity between generations? I think that it does. And I think um, I've mentioned this to you before, but technology, we're wielding the tool. The tool doesn't have to wield us. And I think that it can lead to people getting to know each other and having that immediate experience of performing music together and their different generations. And maybe they wouldn't have known about each other to get into a space where they're really facing each other and really making art without the sort of social media, internet, worldwide web, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it seems like we can do whatever we want with that. We can use it to get together. We can use it to have a meeting of minds. We can use it for understanding or it can be weaponized. So it's just whatever we want to do with it. Speaking of social media, that's how I got to know you initially. And it was during the time of the pandemic. How did the pandemic allow us all that sense of creativity? After all, we were honoring the dead, but somehow the pandemic gave us a freedom to create. Well, I think for me, I noticed that when um, right before the pandemic, I went to London to see the, uh, the very large retrospective of paintings by William Blake at the Tate. And I was really struck by the journey within. He was always on. And that's the meaning of being truly visionary. And what's strange is that six weeks later, we all had to take that journey inside and we had to find a different, less frantic, fast paced way to live. And I think that um, it was a time of growth for a lot of people. It was a time of a lot of sorrow and loss, but um, we were all together in that situation on the planet. And I think that's, um, that's got a lot of value. Certainly it does. Certainly it does. We keep talking about life online and uh, so much of what's happening between artists now is manufactured and manifested online. I think back to the great artists like Picasso and Hemingway back in the day in the 20s, they would get together in Parisian cafes. Dorothy Parker with the Algonquin Vicious Circle. What happened in New York in the 90s cafe scene? I had a conversation with artist Ventico where she talked about her crew having transported onto social media. How are you connecting with other artists, be it online? Well, I've met a lot of artists um, over the years and maybe we don't have the Algonquin Roundtable here where I live, but I know that I know that I went to Chicago over the summer and I spent a day with a friend of mine who's an artist there. And we'd never met in real life, but we talked online enough that we were let's go to this installation, let's go meet this artist, let's go do that. And we just had this amazing day 
you know, so I can go to a new city or I can travel and just plug into whoever I know that's there. And they're like, yeah, let's go get coffee. Let's go do this. Let's go to the museum. Let's go to a concert. And that's, that's pretty luxurious when you can do it with a like-minded person that's also creating. And then it makes me more creative. And that's a beautiful way to kind of segue to what I'm trying to say now or next is the fact that a lot of the artist's life is spent in the studio by himself or herself. How do you market the business of Sharon Anderson? Be it having wherewithal to do an interview or have a gallery representation. How do you market the business of Sharon Anderson using social media tools or whatever else you use? Well, um, marketing Sharon Anderson, that makes me want to laugh a little bit and only because I think I'm extremely unsophisticated in that capacity. I think that I've always got my nose to the grindstone. I'm always working and I'm very social. So that confluence of tendencies gives me a lot of luck and it gives me a lot of, you know, people aren't afraid to come talk to me and say, hey, do you want to be in my gallery or, hey, look at this. There's this thing in Spain. It's a group show. Do you want to submit something? Um, marketing myself. I don't think I would have any idea how to do that. I think I'm just being myself and the habits that I have has led to a certain amount of luck and success that if I was to deliberately try to do that, I'm not sure how I would even begin. I just make art and try to communicate and be involved in the world. And that's the extent of any planning, you know. What's brilliant about what you just said is very much in keeping with the spontaneity that is very much alive in your work. And it's uh, interesting to hear. Thank you. You grew up in Detroit and I'm very much interested in knowing about Detroit because for me, everything began rock and roll wise with Detroit. Talk to me about the girlhood of Sharon Anderson growing up in Detroit in the eighties, being a young girl, finding out about art, wanting to be an artist. Oh, well, it, it's just such a rich cultural place to be from. Um, I mean, anybody who hasn't been there, maybe they have fear in their minds about it, but it's they, they have the best record stores and the best theaters and the best, you know, the Detroit Institute of Art is has got the biggest Diego Rivera mural in the world. It's just an amazing place to be. But your kid in the suburbs of Detroit driving into the city on the weekend, which I always did with my friends who could drive, you know, I was just underage, not driving, but going everywhere. You know, I'd see Lou Reed, the Ramones, Iggy Pop. We go to all these concerts. Uh, I went to Car City Records and blew my allowance at that record store every weekend. I went to John King Books. I went to the art houses and saw the films. The first time I saw a Fellini film or anything early David Lynch film. So it's just a very rich area, but I was quite a nerdy academic kid, you know, that had friends that were interested in what I liked. They were interested in art and music. And um, so we would just go have adventures together. Sometimes we'd drive to Canada, you know, <laughs> it, it, Detroit's the only city where you could drive south and end up in Canada. Um, and that's before you needed a passport. Like, what are you kids doing? Like, we don't know. Like, okay, have fun. And it's, you know, in the middle of the night. So it's, it's just really sounds like a different time. Just hearing myself talk about that. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'm currently reading a book called The Listening Path. I'm in a workshop with a bunch of other artists. 
And the gist of the book is to listen, listen to the environment, listen to each other's artists. How do you listen? Um, how do you listen? And as far as doing that, how does it, how does that inspire the artwork? You have sketchbooks, notebooks. You take notes and talk to me about your art energy. I do have notebooks that I make little uh, preliminary sketches in. I always have sort of a backlog of ideas, but then I have a small, uh, not real small, but I have a group of friends that we show each other one another's art every time we make something. So every day I'm getting this influx of images and um, that collaboration just by communication is very important to me. Yeah, the idea of the notebook. I think there's a show now coming up with Picasso's notebooks. There's a lot of different media involved in your work. There's photography, there's advertising, there's film. And uh, much of this is an essence that's available in your collage pieces. How do these ideas come together in your collage pieces? After all, we were all inspired by the same thing. We all saw the Warhol movies or Warhol shows and uh, levels of advertising. You just mentioned David Lynch's films. We all experience the same things, but you, for example, have all these influences in your work. I do. With collage, I think I'm always just looking for source material that is not identifiable. You're not going to, you know, relate it to a Nike campaign or you're not going to notice where it's from. I find some very obscure image and then I put it in a box and I every time I see something and a lot of times it's it's something repurposed from my own work or my own photography. So um, I think being careful about your source material is very important with collage work and then not overthinking it, just being spontaneous. Sometimes I'll work on something and think, I'm not sure this works, but I'm just going to stop for now. And the next day I'll look at it. Okay, I was done. You could just really overthink something. If you start intellectualizing it too much, you have to just be a little bit, you know, block out the colors and block out the composition and let it talk to you. It reminds me of being in the School of Visual Arts, studying with Judith Klansman, how we used to take textiles, images from magazines, poetry, cut-ups, postcards, and piece them all together. And that's basically how we make uh, composition in our artwork. And you do it so well. Thank I think, you. I think about um, Joseph Boys, one of your favorite thinkers, and I know he's very important to you. Tell me a bit about Joseph Boys. Well, I, of course, didn't know anything about him. But then when I went to college, I studied with, uh, I got a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in painting. And later I got a master's in business. But I was 17 when I went to college to get my BFA. And one of my advisors, um, who I took a lot of classes from, had studied in Dusseldorf with boys in the 60s. And so everything was very definitively Boisean. And we read his writings and studied the fluxists and studied deconstructionism in Derrida as part of art, as part of an art education. So it just became a dyed in the wool thing. You know, it just, the Boisean way of thinking about making art. And I didn't even realize the extent to which it had influenced me, but that was really his approach as a teacher was using those tools. So, um, I mean, it's very avant-garde, but I wouldn't have known that being a young kid, you know, in Michigan, 
and I went to college. At, I was in the middle of a cornfield with this crazy guy telling me all this stuff. It's kind of great. It reminds me of uh, studying William Both and Baudrillard and all these different thinkers in, in, in college. I recently told Noah Becker that the 80s were the end of the future. And he promptly disagreed with me. He said the 90s were very potent. And I said, grunge was not original. Iggy Pop was doing grunge before grunge became grunge. Fetish was not original. Vema Sock, Sada Vema Sock, Venus and Furs was fetish before fetish became fetish. One thing Noah did say, though, was that the 80s were like the 50s. What are your thoughts on all of this? The idea of the 80s as the end of the future and the 80s being like the 50s. Well, I mean, I wasn't alive in the 50s, but I think I know what he's talking about in terms of a return to conservatism. I mean, Reagan got elected and um, the country really existed in a lot of denial about things that were going on, like AIDS and um, just a lot of social problems that weren't dealt with. Uh, mental health issues, physical health issues. So I guess we went backward in time a little bit. We we regressed. And I think that um, things have changed. Th I think things are better now, despite how crazy everything seems to be. I think everyone's a little more aware of the world and what what's going on than we were in the 80s. I think that's why it was so much fun during that time to listen to bands like the SST bands, like the Minutemen and they had political messages and the dead Kennedys. It was so fun as a kid to hear someone be irreverent about all this stuff that no one was questioning. Everybody's just going along with it. So um, it was a weird time to be a kid, to be a teenager in the eighties, because, you know, everything got very buttoned down and very conservative, even music. A lot of the stuff I liked, ended up being from the 60s and 70s because we're just going back in time. Let's just look at what's happening there because what's happening now, I don't know. I don't I don't connect with it. I'm not connecting with MTV. And so it was, uh, could do a dive into other generations. And of course, I spent every dime at Car City Records. I just went every weekend and bought, you know, vinyl for $2 used. You know, one weekend it would be the Velvet Underground and Eco. Next weekend it would be, Bob Dylan, Blonde on Blonde. And I would just spend the whole week just listening and listening and listening and memorizing the words and thinking I discovered something because I'm so silly. And, you know, you can't just look things up online. I'm reading my brother's old cream magazines and it's all I know about music. So you, you just, I thought I discovered, oh, this Velvet Underground record's really strange. Probably no one's heard it but me. So it was just, it was a fun time to be ignorant in the sense of being pure you know, you didn't have all this messages coming at you, telling you, well, this is what that is. And here's how to feel about it. You just sort of have an organic relationship with everything. For a lot of us, the 80s was a starting point. And living here in New York, being tuned into what was happening at the East Village, Warhol, Basquiat, it was very important to me. The new expression is like Sally and Hugo Schnabel and people of that sort. How was the art scene for you and how did it affect you overall? The idea of um, what was happening locally here in the East Village of New York, how did that get out to you in, in Detroit? And what kind of artists in the 80s were inspiring you to some extent? 
oh, artists in the 80s. You know, a lot of the stuff that was happening in New York was very readily available to us in in Michigan because, you know, there's just there's just more of a connectivity there. So whatever was happening there, we knew about. And of course, I loved Warhol and Basquiat. And I think back then they seemed very radical as opposed to now. I think um, Keith Haring, people like that, they seemed very, very radical in the 80s. And now they're very accepted and it's very mainstream. So that's something that's also changed. But, you know, a lot of my ideas about the art art came from the DIA going there. I mean, a hundred years ago, there were no Van Gogh paintings in any museum. The DIA was the first to do that. So they had a, a great, and there's just, just a lot of fun, small galleries and art everywhere that you can see. So it, it would be hard to pinpoint it, but I think it was just everything. It was just the way that time was, that was almost like an art in itself. I said Vigo Schnabel, I meant Julian Schnabel, not Vigo, Julian. The idea of Europeanism in your work uh, versus Americanism. I look at your work and it's very immediate. It's like fast food. It satisfies me and my need in the moment. At the same time, it makes me think. It makes me think about theory, philosophy. Entertain me with the idea of Europeanism versus Americanism in your work. Um, well, Europeanism, I think... Uh, my teachers weren't all from the United States. Um, the teacher I was referencing before was European descent. And um, I studied art in college. The painting professors were just about to retire and they were old abstract expressionist guys where painting was life and death. Um, I think it just instilled in me a value about art that maybe is more easily understood in Europe. I mean, I was told even then that my work would be more popular outside of the United States. And I don't know if that's true, but I know I have more exhibits outside of the United States than I have in the United States. So um, that has become true. And I have a, I have a pretty old fashioned way of living that isn't um, you know, my parents, I was an afterthought of parents who were depression era. So I, I'm just very much spending my whole life reading books and going on walks and painting. And, you know, it's almost like a pastoral 19th century life that I lead in a way. So um, maybe that lends itself more to European sensibilities. I don't really know. And as far as the European ideal, you've traveled extensively. Talk to me about your yes. trips around the world and the cultures you've come across and how they have inspired your arts. Well, um, I've been traveling a lot in the last 15 years. I've been to um, Ireland and England and France and Switzerland a couple of times. And it's, um, I haven't been any place like South America or, you know, I think I've been to Mexico and Canada and a lot of European countries, but I'm not really as widely traveled as I'd like to be. I'll work on that. But um, I've learned a lot from traveling and I've learned a lot from um, like being in Munich and finding a cab driver that's the same age as me. And he's got some punk rock cassettes and he's like, I'm turning the meter off. I'm going to show you something. And um, just really being wherever I am while I'm traveling and talking to people and listening to people. Um, I've taken 
several road trips across the United States and same experience. You know, you land in a diner somewhere and someone starts talking and pretty soon you're learning a whole bunch of stuff from someone you maybe will never see again. So it's just the romance of travel. You mentioned books and I'm fascinated to know about the books you've read. One thing I heard you say, or rather saw a post you posted was the fact that you had read Paris Hilton's memoir. That got a kick out of me. And uh, you were interested in reading Britney's memoir. What's interesting is that I'm very snobbish when it comes to books. I tend to read mostly philosophy books. Share with me your love of books. Yeah, I, well, I'm a snob also, which is probably why I brought up that I liked Paris Hilton's book so much. And she references uh, Renee Magritte in talking about the the superficiality of celebrity media, like this is not a pipe. So that's kind of a, a jumping off point of the story that she tells. And it's very intelligent. So um, I just kind of make myself do things like that once in a while. And because so, I'm in a rut, too, with just reading literature and I like to read philosophy and history. But, um, well, this looks strange. I'm going to I've read a few celebrity biographies in the last year that are really bad, too. But I'm not going to talk about those. Uh, this person has nothing to say. You know, their ghostwriter wasn't, you know, beefing it up enough. So, um, yeah, kudos to Paris Hilton. I mean, really, that was an amazing story. Um, I've been just reading, I just read the new Harry Smith biography. Um, very, very interesting. It's almost like an encyclopedia of everything in 20th century art and culture. Cosmic Scholar is the name of that book. So that's the most recent book I read that really, really got my mind on fire. I think you recommended that book to me, actually. So I'm going to take a look at that. Yeah. yeah. I've come to the point where I'm really excited to get here because I'm interested in geeking out with you about painting. Oh, your life good. in the studio, your brushes, your choice of paint and media. Talk to me about being in the studio. I think about um, the one and only Rosenquist in the studio dancing to Miles Davis. What kind of music goes on in your ear while you're painting? How do you love and excite yourself being in the studio? Well, I have definitely danced to Miles Davis while I'm painting. Um, I, as you know, I love jazz, love rock and roll. I've always got music going and it just makes the whole experience of painting more electrifying and you're just outside of time. You're just in a place that's not in linear time, in my opinion, but um, brushes and paints, you know, I'm not very precious about those things. I mean, I get I get a nice brush and I get a nice tube of paint, but I know people that like mix their own paints, like their own powders to create their own oils and who are just into this, to me, it's a very Byzantine process of getting their paints. And I, I just have the collapsible tubes I buy from the store. I get the good stuff, but um, it's really not fancy. You know, it's just like someone I know who was a musician said, you can take an old Epiphone that costs $100 and pick it up and it can sound great if you're a good player. So I think it's 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 maybe the singer, not the song kind of a thing. Um, it, it wouldn't be very interesting for me to tell you, you know, where I buy my Liquitex or anything like that. But um, it's always exciting when I paint and it always takes me outside of time. And it's been the furniture of my life for more years than than I can count. So, do you drive to your studio? 
Oh no, it's just the entire apartment is a studio, the entire place. Yeah. So it's, I've got a really nice uh, dining room table that looks like it's very nice wood, but it's actually for mica. So I can just sort of abuse it. And then hardwood floors, which are a little bit forgiving, you can get paint off of that. So just wherever I am is where I'm gonna where I'm gonna do it. Where outside on the porch, inside living room, dining room, bedroom, wherever I am. That's yeah. I don't have a studio that I go to. It's just everything's my studio. It reminds me of my Diane. office. My office is my studio. I painted in here before, so it reminds me of Diane Bowen and the late great Diane Bowen, my friend and uh, collaborator. Her studio was her apartment, and the times I had going to visit her, sit, have coffee, and smoke cigarettes and talk about art. Do you ever allow people into that precious, sacred artist space as far as getting visitors and sitting with different artists and talking? Yeah, actually, you know, I've had quite a few, more than I usually have in the last couple of years, people who have come and stayed for several days and just hung out and, you know, friends of mine who are creative people and that's that's really great when you can share a space and and hang out and talk and really get into it and really look at all of the the pieces and they can tell me about their work more um so I've done that probably two or three different times in the last year and a half I've had sort of people that stayed and you know we created together had experiences together so that's cool that's fabulous and one thing I have always said that is we don't see enough of that, but apparently that still goes on. It's amazing. How about the genres in your painting? The idea of cubism, abstract expressionism, figurative art, surrealism. Where do these come from and how do they find a space within your creativity? Um, well, I'm just inspired by everything. And, and I was criticized in uh, art school that I wasn't pinpointing my own style I was kind of exploring everything at once and um, you know some artists make a name for this for themselves by making the same kind of painting over and over um, I've never been that kind of artist and I never will be because I just do things that are interesting to me I'm very interested in cubism sometimes I really want to do realism um, I've been really inspired lately by as I said I I look at my friends artworks every day when they when they have something that they make uh, my friend Kristen Ram Kleps has been doing a lot of nature art that's kind of her thing but she has a very specific way of looking at maybe like a pile of twigs and dead leaves that no one would notice but make that beautiful instead of looking at something that could be considered more picturesque you know and, and I think David Hockney does that so I, I got all this homemade paper from the guy that owns the gallery the Sarko gallery and I I told Kristen, I said, I'm going to do big, big drawings of leaves because I'm just so inspired by. So that'll be a very naturalistic, realistic thing when I get to it. But um, yeah, everybody's dropping a little a little pebble in the cup of creativity for me all the time. Yeah, I love the idea of culture in your work. So much culture. I came up with a sentence that for me best describes how I feel about your work. Bear with me. Post-cultural landscape where modernity comes to term with capitalistic idealism, psychical processing of multidimensional and emotional brutality of placement of color and design, 
What do you make of that? Well, it's it's very flattering. I appreciate that. Um, I, I don't do a lot of thinking about the process. Um, I mean, obviously, if you're doing something realistic, there's planning and staging, but um, I just do whatever seems really exciting to me. The most exciting thing is what I get to work on, and then I have the little backlog of the next thing I will do. And um, some images come from dreams. I have a sketch that I, I hope I can work on it during Thanksgiving weekend. I had a dream that I was in front of the house I grew up in, and it was night. And I was across the street. I was removed from the house, and there was this big crane flying through the air. And as it flew, there was a smaller crane, and it swallowed it. And it was really surreal and symbolic and I, I woke up and started sketching and I'm going to do a painting from that dream so that's a that's a pure surrealist thing to paint from dreams I guess definitely definitely well it's been a pleasure talking to you Sharon you currently have a show at the Stockholm Gallery and a group show in Germany how's that going well it's all going great um, I'm just happy to be involved I'm happy to be asked and I just want to keep collaborating and keeping in touch with all of these galleries and people for as long as I can, as long as I can do it. So it gives me joy. It's been fascinating talking to you, Sharon. Thank you so much. Thank you.